0: The joy of the Lord is my strength, it gets me through the day, gets me through the week, it's a supernatural joy. There's a lot of things in this life that can put a smile on your face, make you laugh, cause you to be happy, but there's nothing like the supernatural joy of the Holy Ghost, and that's only attainable here, it's only attainable here. It's good to be in the house of the Lord today, and I'm excited for this morning's lesson, and I pray that it's a blessing to you. To this church. If you would, we'll get started. If we could turn to the book of James chapter 1. We'll start with verse number 3. James chapter 1 verse 3 and verse 4. Bible says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And then, for the purpose of today's study, I also want to read the same verses in the English Standard Version. It says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. By the help of the Lord this morning, I want to talk to us about the testing of your faith. Testing of your faith. Why don't you shake somebody's hand next to you? See how cold their hand is. God bless you. You may be seated. The testing of your faith. The United States Navy, sea, air, and land teams, commonly known as Navy SEALs. Brother Pearl, are you Navy SEAL? Yep. All right. He's a SEAL, just not in the Navy. United States Navy sea, air, and land teams, they're commonly known as Navy SEALs. They are the United States Navy's primary special operations force, as well as part of the Naval Special Warfare Command. And they were created by John F. Kennedy in 1962 for a more surgical and secretive mission approach from the sea, air, or the land. Navy SEALs are probably America's most fearsome fighting force. They are tough hombres. But each individual's rise to the top does not come without a cost. Their training is so grueling that participants rarely pass the test. I got some pictures up there, sister, if you want to start flipping through them. got some examples here. Probably the hardest of all weeks for SEALs in their training for the recruits is what is known as Hell Week. Has anyone ever heard of Hell Week? Hell Week is the fourth week of basic conditioning for SEAL recruits. This is when students train for five days and five nights solid with a maximum total of four hours of sleep. Five days, five nights with a maximum total of four hours of sleep. Hell Week begins at sundown on Sunday and ends at the end of the day on Friday. During Hell Week, trainees get four meals a day. Sometimes MREs, which is the military um, meal, you know, the, the package deal that they get. But usually hot meals of unlimited quantities. They can usually get as much as they want of hot meals because eating hot food is a substitute for being warm and dry, so that's the substitute for uh, having dry clothes and being in, in a warm environment. It gives a needed psychological boost to these tired trainees, many of whom are nearly sleeping while they eat. If you've ever seen some of the documentaries, you'll see the guys rush into the, uh, the lunchroom there soaking wet and cold from swimming in the ocean. They get a hot plate food before them and they'll sit there and eat and then they'll just start dozing off while they eat. I've seen some where they'll send them out in the water, make them, you know, do a bunch of push-ups, they're freezing cold, their bodies are physically tired, then they bring them in a classroom and make them take a math test. And then you just see guys just crying and breaking down and they'll just stand up, they'll just quit, they'll just say, I can't do it, I go home. Pretty much every evolution during Hell Week involves the team or, or the boat crew, carrying a boat like an inflatable uh, rubber boat over their heads. They have timed exercises, runs, and crawling through mud flats. And These are interspersed throughout the five and a half days. The largest number of trainees drop out during Hell Week. The largest number drop out during Hell Week. This extreme testing of human limits is critical. However, it's absolutely critical to their training. SEALs on missions have to be able to operate efficiently, oblivious to sub-zero temperatures and their own physical comfort. They have to be able to be oblivious to their surroundings, the discomfort around them. They have to be able to be in uncomfortable environments without giving a second thought. They have to be able to experience pain in their body, yet still pressing on and going through. Their lives as well as the others around them depend on this type of training. It's this time of trial and fire that the SEALs go through through that ultimately prepares them for the fight ahead and pushes them to perseverance. Now James 1 says that it's the testing of your faith. Somebody say the testing. It's the testing of your faith that produces patience or steadfastness. That's perseverance. That's being able to stick it out, being able to go through something without giving up. Faith is tested through trials, not produced by trials. Faith is tested through trials, not produced by your trials. Trials reveal in us what faith we do have. Each and every one of us has, the Bible says, a measure of faith. Some of us have a great amount of faith, some of us have just a little bit, but each one of us has a measure of faith. It's your trials that you go through, it's the situations that we face in life that produces and reveals to us just how much faith we do have. This is how our faith becomes evident to us, as well as everyone around us. Trials don't produce faith, but when trials are received with faith in God... It produces patience and perseverance. It produces patience and perseverance. However, this is not a given. When you go through trial and circumstance and you receive them with unbelief, with complaining, your trials can produce bitterness and discouragement. So just as easily as your trials can produce faith when received with faith in God, if you receive a trial, a situation with bitterness complaining then it can produce discouragement but we are to the bible says let patience let steadfastness have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire wanting nothing during trial patience endurance is the mark of a person who is perfect and complete lacking nothing And I believe that there are some among us here today that are experiencing your own personal hell week. Your own trial that you're going through in circumstance that you don't know how you're going to get out of it. Maybe even to the point that you've questioned whether or not you can make it. Maybe even to the point that you've decided in your mind that you might just walk away and give up. You find yourself in the middle of stress and trial and are trying to hold on until your breakthrough. But if this morning, if I can convince you by God's word, if I can somehow speak this to you and let the Lord speak to you, if we will just be patient in his process, God will direct us and push us to our answer. Because our miracle is just on the other side of this necessary, yes, necessary, time of testing, a time of trial. We have to keep the faith. We have to believe that whatever you're going through, God has it under control. God has it under control. John chapter 9 tells of one, man's, one blind man's miraculous encounter with Jesus. As Jesus was leaving the temple with his disciples, passing by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. As he was leaving the temple, Jesus, somebody caught the eye of Jesus. And, and unlike some other examples in Scripture, we think of blind Bartimaeus who cried out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. This, this blind man was altogether different. This man did not scream for Jesus' attention The Bible says that Jesus noticed him first. John says that Jesus saw him first. Aren't you glad that Jesus saw you exactly where you were first? The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. He loved me when I was unlovable. While I was yet sinner, Christ died for the church. He died for you and for me. So thank God that he saw us first. Now Jesus sees this blind man and and it catches his attention as he's leaving the temple. And something about this guy uh, compelled Jesus to go to him, so to walk over to him and to engage him in conversation. Jesus was also surrounded by his disciples. So the Bible says that the disciples saw the blind man along with Jesus. And when the disciples saw the blind man as well, they felt compelled to ask this question in John chapter 9, verse 2. They saw the blind man, his condition. They saw that, that his pitiful state that he was in. So the disciples asked, they said, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, this guy looks awful. This guy's in terrible physical condition. He's not blessed like we're blessed, so he must have deserved this. What did he do to deserve his condition? We're all guilty of that at some point, right? Judging the needy. I believe it's in our human, not spiritual, but our human nature to judge the needy. We see somebody come into the church, and they're dealing with something, and we think, oh boy, what did they do? What did they do to deserve this? Maybe, oh, nobody's ever done that. Oh, that's good. That's good. All right, I'll move on then. I want to say this. See, as humans, we base everything on performance right? You do good, you get a pat on the back. You do bad, you get a pat somewhere else, right? So we do, we think God operates the same way, right? Oh, he's doing good. Let me just bless him. He's doing bad, right? So we base everything on performance. Now, there are consequences to sin. That's absolutely correct. But we should not be so analytical in the presence of an almighty God. When people come into the church and they're dealing with problems, they're they're burdened down with the situations of the world, the church should be a hospital. This is a place of healing. Not a place where we look at others and say, what did they do? What did they do? Did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear what they're doing when they leave the church? Yeah, they used to be at church, but now they're living with so-and-so and doing this and that. We shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't bog down our minds with the hows, whys, who's, what's, when's, where's of life's problems and circumstances and why people are going through situations and problems. That type of thinking stifles God's miraculous work. We need people to be able to to come here and be set free, come here and be healed, come here and allow God to work in their lives. So Jesus rebuked them. He answered, he he said, neither has this man sinned nor his parents. He didn't do anything. His parents didn't do anything. He said, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So there's a purpose behind his blindness. There's a purpose behind the pain that he's going through. Why? So that my works can be revealed in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. So Jesus explained that this man's blindness, that his situation was in the plan of God all along. Imagine that. This guy's limitations in life, the blindness that he had, was in God's plan for his life all along. God does things completely different than we would do, doesn't he? Who would ever think, I'm going to bless you with blindness. I'm going to bless you with a disability. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. So instead of analyzing and focusing on the man as a theology problem, Jesus saw the man as an opportunity to work the works of God through him. John 9, 6 and 7 says, When Jesus had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. So Jesus, after making his point to the disciples, looks to the blind man and does something extraordinary. He spat on the ground and made a clay of the spittle. He anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And after anointing the blind man's eyes with clay, he instructs him in verse 7. He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. So the blind man goes his way. He he goes and obeys what Jesus says, and then he comes again seeing. He received his sight. Praise God. He got his answer, right? I want us to back up a minute. I want us to analyze this a little bit. There was a path between his blindness and his miracle, this blind man. There was a necessary testing of his faith that had to happen before he could receive his sight. Immediately upon coming in contact with Jesus, this blind man who was sitting outside the temple, Jesus comes up to him. And I'm sure the anticipation was, was welling up inside him. He, he knew of Jesus' teaching. He, he heard of the, the miracles the signs and the wonders, the, the great and mighty things that Jesus was doing. So he's getting ready to receive probably his, his healing. He's thinking, now it's going to happen for me. So as Jesus approaches this blind man leaving the temple, the first thing that he does, Jesus, God manifests in the flesh. God who could speak like this and just cause the blinded eyes to open. He doesn't do that, Jesus, but he reaches down in the dirt, he spits, he mixes up some mud, and then he places it on the blind man's eyes. Now, some of you in here who see beyond just things that, you know, are natural and normal and see everything in the spiritual would probably just take off and run and just say, praise God for the spit. Praise God for the mud that was just put in my blinded eyes. It's like rubbing salt in a wound, right? You already can't see out of your eyes, and now you're going to make mud and put it all over my eyes. I'd probably say, okay, thank you for your concern. I appreciate it, but this is a bit much. This is just a little too much for me, a little out there. Imagine that. Jesus. God manifest in flesh goes to this blind man, makes this mud, puts it in his face. Can you imagine the disciples sitting around him, wondering what in the world is he doing? What sense does this make? Putting mud and and spit in this poor guy's face. But the blind man never complained. He didn't say anything back, didn't didn't wipe it off and say, what are you doing? But there was a, a steadfastness in his heart. There was something deep inside this man that he received what was happening with faith. He was being put to the test, and he didn't flinch. Then, as if the mud in the eyes wasn't enough, Jesus instructed him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is, by interpretation, sin. So, blind man, mud in the face, I want you to stand up, And I want you to go walk and wash your face off. This guy was being put to the test. He was being put through the ringer. He was on his way to an answer, but there had to be a testing of how far he would go. There had to be a testing of what he would endure. There had to be a testing to see just how long he would listen to the words of Jesus and obey them. Would he stop at the point of the mud in the face? Would he stop when Jesus told him to go? Or would he continue to press on, to go through it, to have his faith tested, to have himself pushed beyond his limits? He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Go wash your face off. At this time, we study scripture. There were five major pools of water in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to think about this. The blind man, Jesus, and the disciples, where all this is happening, they're approximately somewhere, some small distance right outside the temple. Jesus has just left the temple, so they're they're right around the location of, of the temple in Jerusalem. There's five major pools in, in Jerusalem. The pool of Israel was located right outside the temple, and only about 1.5 miles away from where the blind man was, so it's about a mile and a half from where the blind man Pool of Bethesda, we've heard of that one, was about two miles away. The Gihon Spring was about two and a half miles away. Then there was the fourth pool, the Tower's Pool. This was near Herod's Palace. This was four miles away. Then there was the Pool of Siloam, the one that the blind man was ordered to go and wash his face in. This was the furthest pool from the temple at five miles away. So not only did Jesus take dirt and mud and spit and put it in his face, he said, go wash yourself in the pool. But no, don't go to the pool that's a mile away. Walk to the one that's five miles away. Go as far out as you can, as far distance as you can, and go wash your face in that pool. The one that's closest and most comfortable is not going to do today. The one that, that maybe is within earshot within distance, that somebody can take you to easily. that's not going to be an inconvenience. That one's not going to do for you today. I want you to go to the one that's furthest away. The blind man was directed to travel an estimated five miles on foot to the pool of Siloam in the lower city. In the lower city. And that's also of significance because the majority of this journey to the lower city would also take him through what is known or was known as the Tyropian Valley, the Tyropian Valley. This was a valley the city used, the city of Jerusalem, to dump their debris and their trash and their rot and their filth. It was a, also known as the Rigid Valley because there was, there was sharp objects that would just stick up out of the ground. You were not supposed to walk through there. You could cut yourself, get disease and get sickness and, and, and tetanus and all that stuff. This was broken pottery, broken glass. There was rotting animal carcasses there. There was trash there. It was filth. It was a place of rot. It was not a place that you would ordinarily travel through. But this blind man with mud in his face, with spit on his eye, was instructed to walk five miles out of the way and to go through a valley of of rigid, cutting, glass, pottery, rot, and filth to get to his answer. He received a word from Jesus. He knew that there was a promise just on the other side of this pain. But the pain, the, the, the situation that he was put in was necessary to get him to his answer. There was a testing of his faith. There was a testing of how far he would go that was necessary if he wanted to receive his sight again. It would have been awfully easy for the blind man with spit in his face, with mud in his eyes to say, that's a little too far, that's a little too far for me to walk, and he would have never received his sight. But there was a steadfastness in him. There was a perseverance in him that allowed him to stay the course, that allowed him to to, to go the direction that the Lord had pointed him and promised him. He had to be desperate enough to endure this trial of faith until the end. As he made his way to the pool, there were probably thoughts of giving up, thoughts that this was too much to endure. But still he pressed on until he received his sight. James 1 verse 3 says, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. The trying of your faith. I don't know about you, but there has been times where I've prayed for an answer. I prayed for God to give me direction. And I feel like I've, I've gotten that breakthrough. I feel like I've gotten that answer. But at the same time, it's almost as if there's been a little bit of spit and mud mixed together and just slapped right in the eye. Or you've prayed for an answer. You've prayed for a healing in your body. You've prayed for deliverance from certain situations and, and things that have you down in life. And it's almost as if Jesus said, if you want the answer to this, you've got to walk five miles in the opposite direction. Walking with mud in the face, spit in the eye, dragging yourself through rigid rot and filth, all the while just trying to get your way to your answer. But James said that it's a necessary testing. It's a, it's a necessary Evil that we must go through in order to work our faith into perfection, in order to work our faith into something that's perfect, something that causes a steadfastness, something that causes an endurance. We often pray for and believe God for the gifts of the spirit. anybody ever pray for the gifts of the spirit? The gift of faith, ever wanted the gift of faith. If you've, ever, if you've ever looked at anyone that has the gift of faith, in order for them to have the gift of faith, they go through a lot of stuff. They go through a lot of things. My uh, great-grandfather was uh, very gifted in faith. He operated in the gifts of faith. He was a powerful man of faith. He had nothing, didn't have anything, him and his wife, my great-grandmother. I heard stories heard stories about how they had no money, they had literally dimes to their name and nothing else, and they would just believe God for anything, that's what the gift of faith is, that's when there's trouble all around you, there's problems, but you're just oblivious to it, it means nothing to you, I have no, no money in the bank, I'm not worried about it, does it bother me, no food in the pantry when we get home, what are you talking about? doesn't bother me. That's what the gift of faith is. They had the gift of faith, but they didn't have anything. And then miraculously, they would just receive checks in the mail from people. They'd go to, their, go to the front door and, and open the door. There'd be groceries just sitting there, have no idea who dropped them off. Because they, they were steadfast. They were complete. They had a faith that was not wanting. They, they were not wavered. So we pray for the gift of faith, but we don't want the trial that comes with the gift of faith. If we want a strong and enduring faith, then our faith has to be put to the test. Our faith has to be roadworthy. I saw an article this week on a new Boeing 777, the biggest plane in the world, the biggest plane that they've ever created, but they're taking it on test flights. They have to take it. They have to test it against the environment. They have to to make sure that it can go from point A to point B, and it's not going to run out of gas, and the engine's not going to fail, and all that good stuff. They have to make sure it's roadworthy. Faith is the same way. If you want to use your faith effectively, it has to become roadworthy. You have to make sure that it can endure the elements. You have to make sure that it can go through some things. So God, this morning, There are situations you're going through in your life, but he's trying to perfect our faith. Because this church, his people, we need faith in the last days. We need faith like we've never needed it before. We're going to need faith for our families. We're going to need faith for our cities. We're going to need faith. But in order to do that, God's got to put it to the test. That's the uncomfortable part. It's going to take a little bit of mud to the face. It's going to take God saying, this may not be convenient for you, but I need you to go here. I need you to go through this. But in the process, if you'll listen to his word, if we will obey what he says and just receive it, if we'll receive it and go through it and endure, then our faith will become perfect. Our faith will become complete. But it's necessary that we... Endure the testing of our faith. The testing of our faith. Paul warned in Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but rather spiritual wickedness in high places. So in a battle like this, spiritual wickedness in high places, obviously we've got to be well equipped for the fight. We've got to be well equipped for the battle very familiar portion of scripture Paul said for we wrestle not against flesh and blood Ephesians six twelve. we wrestle not wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Then he says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then he says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Verse 16, again, above all, taking the shield of faith. I'm getting ready to close here in a moment. Above all, taking the shield of faith. It's important that we have the shield of faith to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Everything that the devil hurls at us, brings our direction, throws our way. It's important we have that strong, enduring shield of faith. But if you know anything about weapons, weapons of defense, there's a process to constructing shields. It's not a beautiful process. Often shields in the old times would be used from uh, broken pieces of wood, something that they would take, uh, scrap metal that they could take form and shape into something protective, throw the, the latch through it so they could hold it up. There's a stress that the materials that are bound together and create and produce a shield, there's a stress that these materials have to go through to prove their worth in battle there's a, a bending for the shield there's a a, a, a flame a fire a blacksmith you, you picture the blacksmith who takes takes the flame and the melting down of, of the metals and, and takes the hammer and just beats it and, and forms it and shapes it so the shield of faith isn't something that just comes easily it's not something that's just granted to us without some sort of shaping and forming and without some sort of uh, conforming to to what the maker and the blacksmith would like it to look like. Sometimes the shape of the shield isn't exactly how it should be. It has to be bent. It has to be pushed. It has to be curved. The edges have to be smoothed out. That's how it is with our faith, with our personal shield of faith. There's a testing. There's a trial that it has to go through. There is stress and situation that has to be put through in order to prove that it's worthy of battle. There's a breaking and a binding together that has to take place. That's what makes faith so powerful. It's the process and trial it must endure before perfection. Today, you may be in a test, but that test, understand, is working patience. It's causing you to become steadfast, and that steadfastness, that perseverance, will ultimately lead you to your answer. If you'll stand with me this morning, knowing this—that the trying, the testing of your faith, work of patience, the testing of your faith—does anybody here ever feel like your faith is under test? Maybe you feel like it this morning. But be steadfast and be patient. Allow God to work on you, to work on that faith, to mold us and to shape us into the men and women of God that He would like us to be. We've got to have a complete, we've got to have a strong and a steadfast faith for our families. We've got to have a Strong faith for those that are going through it. Does anybody know anybody that's sick? Anybody that needs desperate healing in their bodies? You want to pray the prayer of faith over them. But in order to pray that effective prayer of faith, God has to put our faith to the test. God has to conform us and bend us and put us through some stress and some tests in order for that prayer of faith to be effective. You've been praying for your family. You've been believing God to do something miraculous, but you just feel like you're in the middle of trial and circumstance. That's okay. God has put you in this place for purpose. God has caused you to be in this place, to mold you, to form you, and to make you into what he wants you to be. blind man had to walk five miles he had to walk with mud and spit in his face he had to go through that rigid valley but just on the other side of that testing just on the other side of that was the answer he had believed his entire life for from birth we're in the same situation this morning but just on the other side of that testing God's going to do something miraculous I truly believe that so this morning, I want us to pray, if we could together, pray that God would give us endurance. God would give us a steadfastness during the testing of our faith, during the testing of our faith. Because if we can endure, if we can endure the test, then God is going to bring us to our answer and we're gonna experience the miraculous. Would you lift your hands with me? Let's just pray that God would give us the strength. God would give us the strength to endure.